0: We are in a series called Unopposed, and we're working our way through the book of Romans and over the last um, few, I don't know, about a year or so now. We've come back to Romans, and we've worked through three chapters here, chapters 9, 10, and 11. And as we've been doing this, we've been talking about the fact that God is God. He's not We don't elect God. We don't vote him in like we, we do our presidents or, or our, our officials. And so there's a kind of a weird thing when you're a Christian. There's a sense it's like, wait a minute, how how why don't I get to pick God out? Why don't I get to elect who I want as God? But God is is who he is. And he's always been who he is. And he's telling us who he is. And some of that kind of can rub us in an interesting way as we've been tech- checking through this text. Now, as we continue forward, however, there's, a, there's an odd thing that's going on in the text I kind of want to bring us along. Maybe some of you remember this, but back in 2006, in the political landscape was kind of in an interesting uproar. Joe Lieberman, who had been a lifetime Democrat, had decided, you know, in order to keep, to retain my job in, in, in the Senate and everything, he switched parties to the the independent party, which threw off the constituents, confused everybody. He was invited to the Republican um, National Convention. He spoke there. There was all kinds of these pieces going on in that time period that caused confusion and, and, and just kind of this discombobulated sense amongst some of the Democrats. At the same time, recently, a guy named Charlie Crist did the same thing in the Republican Party, he moved out of the Republican Party into the independent, into the Democrat, and just wrote a book about why he did all that. And what happens in these cases, regardless of what party you're in, when you see the person that you've thought you've supported all these years, you thought lined up with you, shift views or change directions. It can throw you off. It can make you be like, whoa, wait a minute. I, I didn't know. Wait, What's going on here? It's even worse when it feels like it might be God who did that. And what's interesting is imagine with me for a minute that we would be sitting here and you'd be at church and some people would rise up and they were Christians. Uh, so they were saying they're Christians. And one of these guys is claiming he's a prophet. And he's telling everybody, listen to me, the way of salvation is no longer through Christians. That's just not how it's going to work. In fact, God has fulfilled his, what he's been saying in this guy over here. Let's all go follow him now so you can be saved. I think a lot of us would be like, that's a false prophet you know what? Don't listen to that guy. He, 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 we were told about people like this in Deuteronomy. You know, what? Don't, don't, don't go run after them. In fact, we should probably try to make sure that guy's pushed out of the church. He's not allowed here. He's not allowed to speak here. What's interesting about this, this is exactly the same reaction Israel had when Christians rose up to proclaim Jesus Christ. Wouldn't that be the weirdest thing in the world when you put yourself in those shoes and you start thinking about what would it have been like to be a young Jewish man or a young Jewish woman hearing suddenly about Jesus and this guy who's risen from the dead and the only way to salvation is, you know, he's fulfilled the law, we're done with the law, come through Jesus, and that's how you have this relationship with God. Do you think you'd buy it? Do you think you'd be in it? Because I don't know if we would. I think we wrestle with the idea because it feels like God shifted on us. God moved positions. He said we were the chosen people. Now he, now we're not. This is the fundamental issue that, Dave, uh, that Paul is working through in this text. Is God unfaithful that he stopped using the Jewish people and now he switched over to, the, to these so-called, what, these Christians? Is that what's going on? We, and on our first week in this series, we said, no, no, God's not unfaithful. He's always faithful to the people of his promise. And we said, and those people that's promise have a responsibility to give that gospel out all over the world, to send that message everywhere. And so now he kind of returns back to this problem, this issue that we're looking at, because it, he, they're looking at this scenario going, this just is weird. What is going on? So he's going to sum it up for us in, in chapter 11. So I want you grab your Bible if you can, and uh, open up to Romans chapter 11. If you'd like to use a tablet, you can do that. If you want, you can use the Bibles under the seats and you'll find that on page 946. But this is the back Emotion, because this church is filled with Jewish people and Gentile people, and they're seeing hordes of, hordes of non-Jewish people flooding into the church, and they're going, what's going on here? Why aren't the Israelites taking this in like the Gentiles are? And so this question remains, he asks this, I ask then, has God rejected his people? Did he kick out, has he rejected the Israelites? And he says, by no means, for I myself am an Israelite. Paul says, I'm a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, the, for those of you who might be at the beginning of your Bible, uh, what happens is that God has selected out a people and from Abraham, his son Isaac, Jacob, who is this uh, renamed Israel, and he has 12 sons. One of them is named Benjamin and becomes one of the families, one of the tribes of Israel. And so Paul is saying, I'm of that lineage. I'm part of this people, this nation group that God that God used in ancient times now, uh, and now he's using, and I want, and I'm telling telling you, he hasn't given up on us. In fact, God has not rejected, he says, his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to the to God against Israel. And so he says, he references back now eight and nine. He says, Listen, God is always faithful to the people he's, he's picked out for himself. Now, again, we talked about the fact that there's a sense in which God picked out those people. And we also had a choice in that. So we're not going to get into the theology again of that and get into the details, but we're going to at least say that there is this concept of God knowing for knowing these people. And do you know what the scripture says with Elijah? Now, Elijah was an interesting guy. I mean, you don't know who Elijah is. He was a prophet. Oh, roughly, and you can read about him roughly in about one-third into your Bible, and, and he was a prophet who was about in, this, in the southern portion of called Israel. Now, Israel. now, prophets are interesting. They're not just guys who tell the future. Uh, there are guys who are actually motivated by the first five books of the Bible, the law of the Bible, to point and tell the legal system and the political system that they are off base from what God had called them to. And so prophets would rise up to call the, the, the kings and the queens, and, in their case, back to the truth. And he said, no, this is where we should be. This is the law. Live here. If you don't, these are the consequences that God will bring. And that's when they would start speaking about the future. And so Elijah is one of these guys who's roaming around doing these things. And in the midst of all of this, Elisha finds himself alone. He's, he seems to be alone. He's getting depressed there doesn't seem to be anybody else, any other prophets who are standing up. A lot of them have been killed. So he marches his way off into nowhere into the middle of the desert and sits at Mount Sinai, and there has a pity party. He sings, you know, nobody likes me, I'm going worms. You worms. Know, he's just all bummed out. And he looks at God, and he makes this very comment down here in verse 3. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. The God replies to Elijah. He tells him, look, I didn't send you here. What are you doing here? And this is his reply. I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed to the knee of Baal. So, to the, uh, and so too at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Yes. There- There's still a remnant of Israel. There's still a portion of these people who will believe. God hasn't given them wholly over. They're not all gone. I'm one of them, just like Elijah had a whole bunch. They're a whole bunch now. So don't think they're all gone. But what God is doing, however, is he's intended this to be shown as grace. You can't earn a gift. And as he just finished stating last week, the Jewish people are running after God's favor by running for the law. And God says, you don't get my favor from the law. You don't get right with me by doing perfect things. You get right with me by receiving the grace of the gift of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's what Romans is about. And so finally he says, no, that's the reason why. They have been locked locked off because they didn't see grace. They didn't see it as a gift. They saw it as something to earn. And you can't earn grace. What then? Verse seven goes on. Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it. But the rest were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table be a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened, so they cannot see, and bend their backs forever. And so Paul references two incidences in the Old Testament in which this was predicted. In his, and so we see that there's this remnant then. So now what, what does this mean for us then? We have all this stuff. We have all these pieces. What's going on? Is this a permanent scenario? Is Israel permanently kicked out? God has just said, done with Israel. I'm working now only with the church. This is how it works. End of story. Is this this how it works? Well, it's kind of interesting. Um, my wife and I made a decision years ago when we uh, when we when we got married that we weren't really going to watch TV. And so, you know, we had that whole you know shift from the uh, the uh, analog to, to the digital movement, all that stuff that happened a few years ago. We still don't have a digital antenna. I don't think we do. And so we we, don't, we never picked any of that stuff up. And so we just never shifted. We don't watch television. We don't we don't really watch the stuff. We watch something. We watch on Netflix. And so what's kind of funny. Is years ago my daughter and we pick on you for a second, babe. And my daughter was at her at her. Nana's house, and she was watching TV. And she was about, you know, five or so, and, and as she's watching TV, the story goes that suddenly, uh, she's watching this movie on television, suddenly she just starts screaming, yelling, like, oh, who turned, off the, who turned it off? Who changed the channel? Just something was wrong. And they come down there, what is wrong? What is wrong? She's like panicking because suddenly her movie had stopped. She'd never seen a commercial in her life. It was a commercial and she's like, I don't know what this is. This doesn't fit. This is a different show. You know, oh, to completely threw her off. It was awesome. Now, my boys have a totally different reaction to commercials. Now, my daughter has this reaction, too. But they, they, they're watching it, and then this commercial comes on. It's one of those really weird commercials that aren't really well done, you know. It's kind of got the blue screen, and the little kids are playing with these, like, pillow pets. I'm like, blah oh, a pillow pet. And it's this really lame song playing in the background. And they're like, call 1-800-495, blah, 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 to get your pillow pet. And Dude, you thought my kids found crack? You know they're like, oh, I need a pillow pet. I need a pillow pet for dinner. I need a pillow pet now. I need a pillow, pillow pet. Pillow pet. Pillow pet. Pillow pet. And it's just like everything was about these pillow pets, these blanket pets, all these things. We're just going like, what is going on? Well, they watched a commercial. These people are smart. They test their commercials, and the best test is with a child. Because what's a commercial supposed to make you want? What they're selling. What in the world does this have to do with Israel, Greg? The answer is that God, in his his bringing us in, has done so in a plan to provoke jealousy, to provoke Israel to want what we have. We're supposed to be God's commercial in a relationship with him. And this is huge. Notice how he puts it. So I ask, did Israel stumble in order that they might fall, meaning that they'd be finally dealt with and done with and never to be used again? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, their rejection of the Messiah, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. The goal was to bring this place where Israel wanted what we have. And you know what? It's sad. The church has utterly failed at this. I mean, when we look at it, go type in anti-Semitism and the church. That Wikipedia article is huge. And it, it ranks from the 300s through millennia all the way to us. Time and time and time again, anti-Semitism has risen in the hearts of the Christian world because, well, we, well they've rejected the Messiah. They've, we've heard things like, oh, they killed the Christ. I mean, stuff like this has been said all over the place. God never intended for the church to turn on Israel but to provoke them not with anger but with a life lived for Jesus Christ. A life lived for their Messiah to their God in the worship of him. We were supposed to be the commercial, so they're going like, oh, I want Jesus, I want this all day night. and night. That that's what they were supposed to desire when they saw and heard what we were proclaiming. They should see us and say, hey, they, they were promoting our Moses, they're promoting our Elijah, they're promoting our Isaiah, what's up with this? And that was really the goal. But we failed. I believe we failed because we didn't realize the benefit if we did see Jewish people coming to faith. And the benefits laid out here in the text, he says, now, if their trespass means riches for the world, meaning if their, if their rejection of their Messiah meant riches for the world, the rest of the nations, and if their failure means riches to the Gentiles, those nations, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Okay, so, so we get to be saved because they rejected rejected. What is it going to mean when they come back? That's the question he's asking. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Hold on, time out real quick. Let's clarify this again. If you are a do not have Jewish descent, or just raise your hand real quick. If you do not have Jewish descent, raise your hand. Okay. Then this room is filled with Gentiles, non-Jewish descent people. That's us. So he's talking directly to us. In this church, there would have been filled. Probably a third of them would have been Jewish and two thirds of them would have been Gentile. And the Jewish people have been sitting around going, why are none of our brothers coming to Christ? And all these people who don't know Jesus have been standing around picking their nose for the last two millennia not knowing anything about God. Now they're all coming like crazy. What's going on? And he says, listen, Gentiles, Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, that was Paul's calling to be a particular missionary to the nations. He says, I magnify my ministry. I want to make it big. In order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous. And thus save some of them. For their rejection means the reconciliation of the world. What will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Verse 15 is a very interesting verse when you look at it. He says, I want to provoke them to jealousy. I want to bring as many Gentiles in as possible to provoke them to come to Christ. Why? Because when they do, in large numbers, when that time comes, it's going to bring about life from the dead. In other words, Christ is going to be returning. That seems to be this attachment that goes on in here. And it's very strange. And I'm not going to put all my theological chips on this, but... Notice the connection here, especially as we move forward, that it seems that one day God will bring a revival to Israel, according to verse the next, down here in verse 25. Why don't we go down here with me? Kind of skip this small portion for a second? We'll go back to it here in a few minutes. It starts, lest you be wise in your own sight. Still speaking to the Gentiles, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. So a portion, a large portion of them are not going to believe until... The fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. This is a very odd text. And theologians have pretty much come to the conclusion, I pretty much have come to the conclusion, that what God is about is he's about this work in reaching the nations and bringing the nations in and making them Christians and showing and making them followers of the Jewish Christ, the Messiah. So that as they gather together, one day he will, and this is just kind of a logical necessity. One day Christ is going to come back. One day there's going to be one last non-Jewish person who's going to come to faith. Regardless of what position you're in, one day there will be the last guy. Or the last girl. And that is this idea. The word fullness literally means to bring it to the top of the bucket. The top of the brim. To the very, you can't put any more in it. It's a completely full. What is this going on about? What is Paul saying here? That one day there's, we're going to get all the people, boom, we're done. And now it's going to go, and there's going to be this, this movement of revival with Israel. And somehow that's going to bring about this life from the dead. And this deliverer who's going to come from Zion. What's interesting about this, I don't think Paul made this up. He seems to be referencing Jesus. See, Jesus, in his conversation about the end times in the book of Luke, is speaking, and you guys know I don't talk about end times a lot, but this is where the text goes. We're going to go there. So it's interesting because in the book of Luke 21, where Jesus is speaking about the end times, he says, speaking about the disciples, they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So there seems to be this time which the Gentiles will trample over the Jewish religious area all the way for this time until it's fulfilled. So there's something, some time limit given to those who are not Jewish. There's some full number, some fullness that's going to be reached for everybody who's not Jewish. To me, this inspires me because it connects to me in my mind and maybe I'm wrong and that's okay, but in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus speaks to something like this. He says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. The fullness will, This fullness of the Gentiles will come in and all Israel will be saved. The deliverer will come from Zion. That when their inclusion comes in, you will see this life from the dead. These things line up to me. What God is saying is that it's our job as the the church to get the gospel to the nations, to the people who have never heard Jesus' name, which is why we at Olive Branch, we believe that God is about reaching those who cannot hear the gospel because there is no person present to bring it. Or there are not enough people. And so we're sending our team to Mozambique. We're seeing the McCullums take off through missions. Some of us one day may be called by God, by our elders, to say, you know what? Consider the fact that you need to go to another nation where otherwise they would never hear. Guys, this, to me, is a successful venture then. Because it says there will be a fullness of the nations that will come in. A fullness of all the people groups will be reached. And then the end will come. There's a connection here. In fact, I know we'll succeed because in the book of Revelation, chapter seven, verse nine, we end up reading this. John, who is the author of the book of Revelation, is looking at the throne room of God. And there's not there's some people there, there's some elders and some angels and stuff hanging out. And suddenly, this multitude appears in heaven. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples, languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And these people end up uh, being, they go, well, who are these guys? And it says, these are the people who have been bought by the blood of the Lamb. This is the church. Every nation, every people group, all tribes, peoples, languages, nobody's left out. All the groups make it in. The gospel has gone to the fullness of the Gentiles. Guys, we get to be a part of this. God's called the church to be involved in this. That as we reach out to the people surrounding us, we are reaching out to one of the nations. And then as we go to the other nations, we bring that message. Why? Because as the gospel is sent to the nations, the nations receive it, and it provokes Israel to jealousy. We become a great commercial for the spread of Jewish truth and Jewish knowledge and Jewish promises and a Jewish Messiah that we have been given as a grace. I think that would be a testimony to those people. God's plan is to make these people jealous. Why, why would he do this anyway, though? I mean, why would he just, you know, partially harden some of them? This seems so weird. And that's what Paul kind of addresses here at the end. He says, as regards to the gospel, um, they're enemies for your sake, right, meaning right now. But as regards to election, they're beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Hey, this is their promises. This is their truths. This is their stuff. And for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God's not going to just leave them permanently hardened. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. For God has co-signed all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. In other words, he's just saying, look, if we just left Israel to keep doing their thing, they would have thought it was done by the law. And he says, no, I let them become disobedient so that we would see that it's all about mercy. It's not about being perfect. It's not about being right It's in, in, in every single aspect. It is literally about grace and mercy. And God has bestowed that on all of us these people groups of the world, including Israel. So that seems to be Paul's language for why God uh, did that. But okay, what does that mean for us? What does that do about our lives? How should that adjust who we are? And we need to remind ourselves that if, God, if it's God's plan to make Israel jealous by using the church and our, our life with God, the question we should ask ourselves is this, what kind of commercial are we being? How good of a job are we really doing? Are we really living in a manner that provokes people to long to have the relationship with our God? Are we living in a manner that causes people to really say, whoa, what you've got, I want. Like a light in the darkness when you're groping around. Are we offering that kind of thing? See, the salvation that we receive ought to make us humble and faithful in our relationship with God. It is something that ought to drive us to a deep humility. And this is where Paul begins. He says, If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, oh, go, sorry, go back to verse sixteen, we're gonna pick up this middle part. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. If the root is holy, so are the branches. It's just a, a, an expression where he's trying to say, if the one part is holy, the rest of it's going to be good. If you taste a bit of the cookie dough, we all go, man, that's good cookie dough. You judge the whole cookie dough by the piece. And so he's saying, look, this first root is good. The rest is going to be good, and so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and now he's talking about Israel, if some of these branches were snapped off, For you and you, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishment of the root, the olive tree, don't be arrogant toward the branches. This is a picture, an interesting picture. Imagine with me you had a a CEO of a large corporation and he has an opportunity to fill backfill his vice presidency so this guy will eventually take over. And as he goes out, people are giving him his resumes and he's like, I don't want none of that. He goes out in the middle of the street and finds some random kid who never got through high school doesn't have an education, really has never worked a job in his life, just kind of one of these people that's kind of sitting there with no start, and he goes, I'm making you the vice president. People would be like, you're crazy. What are you doing? You can't do that. That's not how it works. And the CEO would say something to the akin of, well, the reason I did is because I can make him what I need him to be, and he trusts me. See, the trick is here for us, guys, what God has given us in our salvation is ridiculously counterintuitive. Paul says, here's what he did. Imagine you've got this beautiful olive tree. It's producing tons of olives. It's been cultivated and cared for. It's got this big, strong trunk. It's got these beautiful branches, tons and tons of fruit on it. And what he does is he goes off and he finds this mangled, nasty-looking, fruitless, wild olive tree out in the middle of wherever. And he goes, yeah, I like that. Now, the, in the horticultural world, what you would do is you would take a branch from this wonderful, filled olive tree, take it over here, and you would graft it into this fruitless olive tree, and it would start bearing fruit. But that's not what this says. It says that we, the Gentiles, were this mangled, crazy, fruitless tree. And he goes, I'll take one of those, and he chops off one of these fruitful branches and ties us in. It's a picture to say the absurdity of what God has done. That God would give us a place that we wasn't deserved. We didn't grow up naturally in it. We're from some other wild thing. And he puts us in this blessing that he's given to Israel. He's given us this grace, this gift. And what we do is we turn around we get arrogant. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm a Christian, of course, you know, God's, me and God were like this, you know, uh, know. guys, arrogance is unbecoming of Christianity. Humility is the, is the, is the key word here. He says, don't be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it's not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. The blessings didn't come from our heritage. My heritage, the Celts or somewhere in the Western hemisphere, somewhere out there in Europe, they were crazy. Naked warriors running around burning people in giant, giant things and just, they were crazy. They didn't have any spiritual heritage that, that is worth anything. It's the Jewish people that I've been grafted into. It's their blessings that we've been given. It's their Messiah, their God. And that's important to note. That should keep us humble. It shouldn't make us arrogant. No one in the room that claims the word Christian deserves it. Amen? It's given to us. It's not something we earn. It's not something we we keep by good hard work. It is something given to us by God. And that's the first start. We need to have that humility. The second thing we need to realize is that it should lead us not just to have a humility where we're not being brash and rude and arrogant, but it gives us humility in our thinking, in our life, in the way that we approach things. Guys, one of the biggest dangers in our culture is we think we can make up whatever we want. When you ask people about the value of humanity, when you ask them about difficult questions on marriage, on on stuff about questions about when sex should happen, on questions about the value of a human being, about all of these pieces that we all struggle over as Americans, wondering what is going on. We talked about this on Image of God Sunday. But the answer usually given to us is not some grounded, this is how God has told us some being beyond us who is greater than us and made us and made this world, which is what we say, but our answer in our culture is, well, I don't know, just because. Or it looks like this way. That just seems right. It feels good. All of that, and I want to be respectful, but it equates to, I don't know, I'm just making it up. That's what it equates to. And if somebody stood in front of a classroom and proclaimed these things and you, ground, and you ask them, where's your grounding in? Well, pff, I don't need no grounding. I'm making it all up. What value is that as an education? And that's the danger. We're encouraged to just make it up. Not to ground it in anything internal. Not to ground it in anything of wisdom. But just to make it up. Go ahead. Let's do it all new. I believe that to make it up is the opposite of humility. Guys, we don't get to make stuff up as a church. And that's, for a creative person, that kind of hurts. You know, it's like, oh, I like making stuff up. What I mean by that is I don't get to make up my theology. I don't get to make up my stances. I have to study, understand what God has said, and then where he stands in humility, I got to stand with him. Humility doesn't just lead to attitude, it leads to belief. There's a humility of belief. There's a humility of action. It's not trumpeting ourselves. It's just quietly serving, quietly doing things. Yes, preaching the gospel. But it's humility. And this is becoming, because I've been, we've heard it loud and clear now. The culture has told us, you're a bunch of arrogant jerks. That's what they've told us. Hypocrites, arrogance, is the key pieces that they see in the churches. We ought to be humble. We ought to be humble. Second, we ought to be Intimate in our relationship with God. Notice how this goes. Well, you're going to say, then you'll say to me, verse 19, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Well, that's, that's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear, for it is God. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note, Then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen. But God's kindness to you. Provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? So that's a lot of grafting, Greg. What's going on here? The answer is simply this. Guys, I get it. There's a once saved, always saved mentality. When God's looking at the world, he knows exactly everybody who's in eternity because he knows everything. And I'm not a guessing game for God. He knows exactly who they are knows exactly what's going on. knows every single human being and everything, all that stuff's dealt with in his mind. He knows it all. So I'm not here to say that you can, that you quote, lose your, there's a whole question. Can you lose your salvation? All that, let's just put it this way. You raise that question for a second, just ask this, are you being faithful to God? Or do you think you have a right to excuse yourself to sin like you want because you're claiming a relationship with him? And he says, no, 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 you don't understand. In the act of unbelief, in distrust of God, when you start living in the way that you want, be sure he can and will trim you off. If he was willing to do it to Israel, why wouldn't he be willing to do it to the U.S.? Why wouldn't he be willing to do it to California? Why wouldn't he be willing to do it to SoCal? Why wouldn't he be willing to do it to Corona? Why wouldn't he be willing to do it to our home? Why wouldn't he be willing to do it to me? And so it's a challenge. He says it should provoke fear in us in a sense of honor and reverence to walk faithfully with God. And this isn't to think that your salvation is based on your works. This is simply to walk in a relationship with God. It should be an intimate relationship, one that provokes jealousy from others, one that's so positive, so strong, so true. You don't have to fear whether you're grafted or you're going to be cut off. That's not how it works. He's just saying, but you shouldn't get arrogant so much so that you can run around going, well, i got a relationship with God. I mean, I'm fine. I can do whatever I want. Nope, 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 nope. Don't get so cocky that we lose the intimacy with God. See, humility births a relationship with God that is so intimate and so careful. And it would become part of our lives, woven and detailed into the very programming of our days. And so it's just line by line found everywhere in us. And so I want to give you a bit of a challenge. It's a devotion check. And these aren't rules, but this is just some, I've found this to be, it's something I've just come across. I'm finding it's something I'm trying to install into my heart and my life. And it just helps because I want to use a devotion check that comes from the Jewish world. Because if I'm supposed to provoke them to desire to worship, the, to worship their God, their, the Jesus Christ, then I want to I take their great commandment and flesh it out. Look at their great commandment. Deuteronomy chapter six, beginning in verse four through seven. It says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. There's the humility. I mean, God, you've got my heart, you've got my soul, you've got my might, you've got my all. I'm not going to do it. It's yours. I surrender. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You're going to live this out. It's going to be in you. It's going to live in you. You shall teach them diligently to your children. They're going to come out of you. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. So let's put these in a chart just to kind of look at them for a second. When you sit in your house, typically you sit when you have a meal, breakfast, lunch, dinner, or when you're sitting down for some kind of entertainment or something. That's when we usually sit. I read, I walk, something. Are we in bringing our God into these conversations? At the breakfast table, at the lunch time, at the dinner time. When we walk, that's travel. In the ancient world, when you walked, you were going somewhere. That's how you went somewhere. And you were on a travel. He's saying, how about your travel time? When you gather your kids in the car, you say, hey, who's going to pray? Or when you're gathering up for a, for a trip, do you pray over that trip? Do you have some time scheduled where you can talk as you're gathered together to talk about God? Or maybe when it's you do your commute. Some of us got a long commute. What are you listening to? What kind of conversations are you having in the carpool? When you lie down. That's not lie. Like when you lie down, Bedroom, bedtime routine. Your children aren't the only ones that get to have a bedtime routine. I think we as adults should continue to have bedtime routines. What scripture are you in? Can, do you read a proverb, a psalm? Do you pray and then go to bed? Do you go to bed with the word of God and the thoughts of God on your heart and on your mind? When you wake up in the morning, do you have a morning routine? Do you include just, just even a quick like, paragraph, something to grab and remind you, a quick prayer, some time with God so that your morning is, is, is brought in? It's programmed in, and then your sabbaths so it's like Sundays. We miss want to miss our time with God, with the God's people on holidays, which is um, and like Thanksgiving. These different are we bringing Christ into these conversations? Vacation, which is not an opportunity just to press the flush, the flush the brain, and out goes everything. I, I, I'm, so many times I've gone on vacation, and I kind of left God at home, you know, I, I, and I, I hate that because I come back and it's like takes me a while to get back into some kind of devotional routine. But instead, I should. Go with God on vacation like the ancients did. They would use these times as times of focus, as times of of cleansing and rest with God. So it's just a challenge, just something to look at. And what I want to challenge you guys with is to do this as a devotional check, just to try it. Just to put it into your life. Install it in for a week. You know, take a picture of it, write it down, draw it out, check out Deuteronomy 6, and we'll, get it up on, we've got, we'll have it up in the notes in the, out there on, on the website. Maybe we'll just publish this picture there with the, with the podcast. But the, bo- the bottom line is that this should be something that kind of rolls through our lives. I want to give you this little tool that maybe it's just something you plug in at your lunch, at your dinner, at your entertainment time, as you walk, as you, as you go away from here today. What is your conversation about? How is it rolling through your life? And it's not some special edition it's just putting it in the places where we're already living. And so this is just one of those small challenges because I really believe that as we do this, it's a little bit by a little bit by a little bit. It's the drip system of spirituality. And as you grow and understand your relationship with God, you'll desire this more. You'll, get, you'll grow stronger in prayer. You'll grow stronger in the word. You'll grow stronger in your decision-making. All these pieces will come into play. And what you'll discover is that in time, that's obvious to others. And God God will begin to provoke people to make them go, hey, what is up with your life? And you will become a great, quote, commercial, end quote, for God. Would you bow your heads with me? God, I just, um, I feel the challenge in my own soul on these small pieces like this. And I ask that you would just help this church, these people who are here today, to see you in the bits and pieces uh, woven through their lives. God, that you would just allow in their hearts and their minds an opportunity to be in your word and prayer with you, to be connected with the brothers and sisters of Christ. God, that we would be a great commercial, a humble and intimate relationship with you, that others might long to know you and might long to connect with you, might long to be forgiven of their sins, might long to be transformed. And God, that's what we long for. And I ask that you would allow that to be the case in our hearts, that you would be exalted, not just in our homes, but in the nations. And so we lay this at your feet, and it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.